That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. I'm Mick Garris, and this is Postmortem. As we're recording this, I've just returned from a couple of trips to Moscow and Amsterdam, and I'm here to report on the state of international horror. In short, it's good. Really good. Recently, I've been in such varied places as Buenos Aires, Mexico, and South Korea, and will be heading soon to Spain and other countries. The reason for all of this travel? Film festivals. Specifically, film festivals celebrating horror and fantasy films. As someone whose entire career has been spent in this field, I've been lucky enough to have been invited to participate in such festivals for some time now, and they are a phenomenon. To my knowledge, there are not global film festivals saluting westerns or dramas or comedies or musicals. But the horror genre appeals to a wide participatory crowd of fans. Fans who not only want to see the films, but embrace them, to learn about how they're made, to celebrate them, and to share the experience. They are not passive viewers. They are passionate and active revelers in dark cinema, intelligent, knowledgeable, and filled with enthusiasm. It's fascinating to meet both fans and filmmakers alike around the world, to experience the genre films from different cultures and nations, to find that horror is celebrated as something special, as more than just a bunch of teenagers getting creatively slaughtered one by one, as is the primary focus of American studio horror. American horror, thanks to the input of terror cinema from around the world, is expanding, growing more diverse, more textured, more creative. As in the world around us, the genre is growing up as well as out. There will always be room for simple recreational slashers. But for me, getting a taste of something new, horror stories intended for grown-ups, set in worlds that are real but less familiar, is the most exciting place to be. The tribe is is ever-expanding, exciting, growing. Fear may be universal, but the specifics of those fears are complex and manifold. Horror has always been the place for ideas and imagination, where we can invent new language for cinema and tackle any subject directly and through metaphor. Horror movies speak in many languages, and I'd love to be able to speak them all. Vincenzo Natali has worked in many media and has already created a remarkable portfolio of work in our beloved genre. You may or may not know his name, but you surely know his work, and we're going to find out all about it in just a moment. You are now listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris, where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts, literally, to the renowned horror director, writer, and producer. Now, here's your host, Mick Garris. So, how did it start for you? When did you become enchanted with the unusual um as far back as i can remember really and uh do you remember a a light bulb moment where something connected to you in a way oh wow this is for me it probably precedes my living memory Ah, i'm convinced that it's genetic really yes my son has a predisposition for it and i i didn't encourage it whatsoever how old is he he's six but 
but he he was attracted to it really at the age of two. Was either of your parents attracted to the genre? No. No, I don't know where it comes from. It's all very strange. But you started drawing. You're an artist. Before you started filmmaking, you were actually doing art. Yeah, uh, drawing really is where it all began with me. Um, I've drawn my whole life. And how did that start? Uh, it started with crayons. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And it went from there. And it really hasn't evolved all that much. <laughs> I don't think I've matured all that much. Now, let's not be too modest. <laughs> I mean, you made a very good living as a storyboard artist. And you have to be a pretty damn good illustrator to be able to do that professionally. Um, yeah, it was, it was a wonderful way to, being a board artist was a wonderful way to work and to learn and then make a living so I could make my films. It was really, uh, I worked at an animation studio in Canada called Nelvana for many years. They were very popular for a long time doing features as well as commercials and TV, right? Yeah, it's a really interesting place. And um, I did mostly Saturday morning cartoons. Wow. And that was, that was like my film school. I, I was there for about five years. And, uh, and I you know, was actually paid fairly well, and I was able to finance my own little movies. And that's how I began. Ah, okay. So did you go to art school? No. No, I went to film school briefly. Ah, okay. Yeah. Which one? At uh, Oh, in, in Toronto? In, in Toronto, I went to Ryerson. Ryerson Polytechnical Institute, as it was known then. Very well known as a film school these days, though. Uh, it is, yeah. And I really enjoyed it, too. It was very hands-on. It was a polytechnical institute, so it was very hands-on. And uh, that was really why I went. I just, I didn't, I wasn't interested in theory. I just wanted to make movies. And I was just a little bit, I don't know, too ambitious. And I decided that it was too slow, it was too long, and I just wanted to get out there and do it. And so I quit. And then I became a very bad waiter <laughs> and realized I'd made a huge mistake because it was really expensive making films. <clears throat> and, uh, and you were working with film, not digital in those days, right? Oh, yeah. 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 This is 16 millimeter. Yeah. Yeah. So it was, it was pricey. And, um, and that's really how I started doing boards professionally was just to make ends meet. And then I managed to save up and do a few of my own films <clears throat> on 16 and um, did the festival circuit. And, and then really my film school training was at the Canadian Film Center, uh-huh. which is effectively Canada's version of the American Film Institute and a school that Norman Jewison started in the late 80s. And uh, I applied there with my films and with the script for Cube. Right. Now, uh, Cube turned into a big festival success. Tell me how it came to be, and then we'll go into how that affected the direction, the, the course of your career after that. Um, well, it was an odd thing. I mean, Cube, Cube was born out of, I think, just feeling trapped in my life. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, it, was, it was the collision of that with just the necessity of making a low-budget feature in one set. In one set, right. And, and I... <laughs> was trying to think of a story I could tell where I would have that luxury of just being in one set, but would some way, in some way be able to make my characters move around from place to place. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't uh, too hermetic. And make them three-dimensional in order to fill a one-set movie. <laughs> right, exactly. And, uh, and then it just occurred to me, well, what if one set could double as many? And mm-hmm. that led me to think of uh, a maze composed of identical rooms and therefore a symmetrical maze and therefore a cube. So did you also do the production design on it? No, I had a wonderful production designer, Jasna Stefanovic, um, who later went on to do Virgin Suicides and work oh. with Terry Gilliam. And wow. um, and she had done some of my short films. 
And uh, yeah, it was, but it was made with friends. It was made with people that I grew up making Super 8 films with when I was a kid. Super 8. Oh, yeah. I go back to eight. <laughs> Regular oh, eight. you're really going back. <laughs> Call me grandpa. <laughs> I think I might have done some eight millimeter too. Yeah. But. So this movie came together, very inexpensively made, and suddenly you find yourself on the festival circuit where people are noticing it and going, wow, wait a minute, this is something special. So where was the first time that happened? Well, um... Cube premiered at the Toronto Film Festival. Which is the best place a movie could possibly premiere even today. Yes, but I don't want to bore you with the details, but making Cube was a very difficult, and I could describe it as traumatic experience. Well, bore me with those details. <laughs> well, it was... Um, how, is, how so? Uh, it was traumatic because I had a perfect vision of what the movie would be, mm-hmm. and it was designed to be made for this very low budget and under extremely controlled circumstances. And I, being a storyboard artist, drew everything, and I had it very meticulously planned. So you boarded the entire film? I'm boarded, oh yes, as I do. Like even when every I do, frame, yeah. Even when I do TV shows, I, really? I draw the whole thing. Wow. It's just my insane process. And um, you don't feel trapped by that? Or because you're directing no. as well as the illustrator, you know when you can throw them away and, and improvise. Exactly. No, they're designed to be disposable. That's sort of my storyboard <laughs> philosophy. So... Nice. Uh, yeah, I, I find them liberating, actually. Um, but in this particular case, I had a very clear idea of what I wanted. And uh, on the first day that we were going to shoot, the whole movie is about people passing through doorways. And our doors, as brilliant as the set was, the doors didn't work. You couldn't oh, physically no. open a door. And so I was going to shoot the movie in sequence, which is almost unheard of. Right. Because normally you can't do that. But because of the particular nature of this, I was going to do that and when that didn't happen it threw our schedule out the window and oh, no. executive producer called or the person who ran the program called us in and said you know we might have to shut down and it was this whole catastrophe so the only way to get through it was to jump into the middle of the movie to the only mm. sequence that didn't have doors opening and closing <laughs> and uh and then it was just one catastrophe after another and tell me a couple of catastrophes the set almost collapsed on me <laughs> Uh, that would be a small one. Oh, I shouldn't uh, laugh. That's no, painful. <laughs> and and then there were, you know, it was there was some dissent among the crew, and mm. um, I certainly don't want to say name names or say who uh, it I was, but but there were there were some personality conflicts, mm. and uh, I am a very calm person. I don't usually lose my temper, but at the end of that film, I somewhat famously um, I kicked a chair. Oh, no. Lost my mind, kicked a chair, and broke my toe. I did the same thing <laughs> on The Shining. I broke my foot kicking an apple box. You did? Yes, because I, too, am a very mild-mannered sort of filmmaker. And uh, But when it I, comes out, right? It, yes. It really comes out. Yes. That's the dangerous mild, thing about us quiet folks. <laughs> watch out for the mild-mannered people. Yes. Yeah, we should, we should wear steel-toed shoes. That was my mistake. <laughs> Unfortunately, that <laughs> apple box was steel-reinforced. So Yeah, oh, wow. <laughs> Yeah. No. So yeah. Go so, ahead. So yeah. So I finished what, my day with a shoe full of blood. What led you to that explosion? What led to it was there were certain elements within the crew that were, I think, to protect themselves, turning against the production mm. because they could see we could never make the film within the time constraints that we had. And as a defense mechanism, I think some people were like, "Well, we told you so," and they were just constantly dragging their heels. 
And on that particular day, which was towards the end of the shoot, I was shooting the final scene, the climax, and we had lunch. And after lunch, I came to the set, and the crew wasn't at the set. There was no crew. It was just me and the DP, who I I adored, who worked harder than anybody. And he was like, well, okay. And he started moving lights around. I was like, okay, that's it. And I lost my mind. Oh, my God. And I stormed through the studio screaming, where's the crew? Not in those words. And... uh, (laughs) And then I kicked a chair in front of nobody and broke my toe. But it freaked people. I, and by the way, I don't, I don't recommend this. Um, generally speaking, I don't think it's a good idea to lose your temperature, temper on the set. But, um, but in this case, it, it kind of freaked everybody out. Well, it galvanizes never... them. I've had that experience too, where if you're the easiest guy in the world to work with and you blow up, they listen. <laughs> they did listen. And we finished the climax and it was okay. Um, so where did they yeah. disappear to? Were they on salary? Did they? Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. No, everyone was being paid. They were just. And everything was way over schedule, but they're still being paid. But they just kind of filtered away. I think it was just, it was a, it was a very strange situation. There are other, by the way, most of the people weren't like that. Most of the mm-hmm. people were super dedicated. And the but cast it was only and you and your DP. <laughs> it was only my DP and myself. <laughs> anyway, I, I don't want to say, I don't want to say who was truly responsible. I don't want to know. But there, there was, there were forces at work that led me to this point it was a horrible situation um at the end of it actually i remember i got a, a bottle of champagne from norman jewison who started the school and in the film i should mention that cube was made under the auspices of the canadian film center right and so and, it was sort of a glorified film uh, student film it was yes yeah. but we were made with professionals and right. at quite a high level i would say uh and lo and behold, at the end of the shoot, I got a, a bottle of champagne from Norman Jewison with a note that said, well, you broke your, to- your toe, but at least you didn't break your heart, <laughs> which I'll never forget. And, uh, but I really thought I was making a terrible, terrible movie because every oh. day I was just tearing out my boards and compromising in all kinds of ways that I thought were harmful to the film. And really right through the editing, pro- I, I mean, the only thing that kept me going was just the thought that if I don't finish this, I'll never make another movie. Mm. So I just tried to get to the end. And then through the editing process, I just thought this movie's awful. Oh. And then, I'm sorry, by the way, this is like an insanely convoluted way to answer your question. No, no, I love it. Yeah. Even to the point where when I finished the film, I just really didn't think it was very good. But it somehow got into the Toronto Film Festival. And then uh, the first review came in. And there, was a, there is a magazine in, in Toronto called Now Magazine. And mm-hmm. particularly at that time, not, which is like Village Voice, basically. Sort of our L.A. Weekly. Or L.A. Village Weekly. Voice, reader, that sort of thing. Exactly right. So that's, those are the reviews that everybody reads when they go to see the movies at the Toronto Film Festival, and particularly at that time. And there was a critic who I had grown up reading my whole life who wrote for it, and he wrote a review of my film, and I would say it was probably the worst review I've ever read for any movie ever. No. It oh, was, no. It was, a, it was a, like a devastating review and i just thought that's it like this is going to be a complete catastrophe um but then we had a screening and the screening seemed to go very well and by the end of the festival we actually walked away with an award and uh and and then cube just had this weird it was like i was describe it like a slow punch Mm -hmm. like i i didn't know that it was a hit or that what had happened until after the fact like it kind of whatever success it had sort of came and went because it happened so gradually and slowly as it disseminated through the world um 
And uh, but th- that's really what happened. It it just hit the festival circuit. It went everywhere, and it had quite a bit of financial success in France and a lot of attention too. Japan. Though it must have it must have drawn producers to you saying, "Here's a new voice." that we find interesting. What were the things that came your way because of, of Cube? Well, I went through, you know, it was just this, um, I mean, it's just this continually surreal process. I'm sure you're more than <laughs> well aware of that, Mick. But um, uh, I lived the dream. Like, I, this was the movie I wanted to make. It was a very difficult film to make, but I effectively did make my movie, and it was my cut and everything. No one creatively messed with it. It was just anything... It happened was only circumstance. Right. Um, so I, whatever Cube is, it is something very, in fact, I could say this really with about all of my films. I've been very fortunate that way. Whatever is right or wrong about them, you can blame me because mm. they were made without interference. And, and so I, I really was fortunate. And, um, and then the film kind of garnered some attention. And it, well, it was, was even a hit in a couple of countries. Japan, I think it was really it, a box office hit. It made a lot of money in Europe and Asia, yeah. and uh, actually everywhere but North America. And it did particularly <laughs> poorly in Canada, I should point out. Home sweet home. Um, but yeah, but it was bought uh, for U.S. distribution. It did extremely well on video. Right. And anyway, I immediately, after the second screening of the film at the Toronto Film Festival, I was courted by agents and... I got an agent in L.A., and I did the whole tour. The Hollywood thing. Which was like, you know, I was, I, had, I mean, I went into Lightworks. I, I went into, or Light, Lightstorm. I went into yeah. James Cameron's um, wow. house studio office. And, uh, you know, it really was very exciting. It ultimately, I think, was the worst thing that ever happened to me. <laughs> what, the success of the movie and bringing yeah. you to Hollywood? Yeah, because really? I spent a lot of time meeting people. Yeah. And and what I gradually, I mean, there's the very famous Dorothy Parker saying, which is Hollywood kills you with encouragement. Right. And that's precisely what happened was I, I met all these wonderful people and everyone was sweet and intelligent and uh they really weren't interested in anything I wanted to do. And I really wasn't interested in anything they wanted me to do because it all seems so, you know, vapid, you expect, vapid and <laughs> not terrible, like not, yeah. but just not special. And, and I a lot really, of movies with numbers in the title. A few. Yeah, yeah, there were a few. And it was just an odd thing. Like I think cube cube was a, a success at a certain level, but it wasn't such a success that, you know, blank checks were being handed. To right. Me. And I wasn't just allowed to do whatever I wanted. So uh, it became a little bit of a vortex for me. Mm. I was just sort of sucked into it. And I I really had a hard time getting my second film made. Getting the second film made for me was actually much harder than the first. Really? But before we leave Cube, I, I you said how difficult it was to make it and how you felt like you were making a bad movie. So going to work every day must have been really a challenge for you if you thought you were missing your mark every day oh yeah i was ama- i couldn't eat i was emaciated by the end of it i oh looked God. like i was uh, <laughs> skeletal yeah it was it was really but it was good you know it was as it should be it was a, yeah. a trial by fire and that which doesn't and, kill you and all yes yeah. exactly uh and i have tremendously fond memories of it and you know i've many of the people i've made it with i'm still very close to well and the good news is that the story ended victoriously it did it really did it was a lovely 
no, it was it was a magnificent, magical thing. And I, as you know, every time we get to do this, we're incredibly lucky. So and I, lucky. I never take it for granted. And every day I'm, I get to go on set and do have you know this tremendous privilege of making this kind of art. I'm, I'm tremendously grateful. So. Um, so yes, it was hard, but it was, it was magnificent. And, and, and yeah. What was the best screening of Cube? You went to all these festivals. Was it, was it TIFF? Was it somewhere else around the world? Um, I had a screening. I must admit there was, um, there is a festival in France, uh, that you might know of called Jérôme. Yeah. And it's screened there. First of all, going to France was, I didn't travel. I, of course, devoted everything I had to making movies. So I made a point of not traveling. Yes. And I, or doing anything except trying to get my movies made. Not eating, nothing. <laughs> nothing uh, throughout my 20s. And then when I made Cube, that was not only my, I got a chance to make a film, but then that was my ticket around the world. And I, right. I went with the movie all over the place. Um, and that's how I met my wife. <laughs> nice. <laughs> As a matter that's of a fact. a good story. So a lot of good things came out of it. And, uh, and one particular occasion, I went to France and to this charming little mountain town called Jérôme, where they have a fantasy film festival or a festival of the cinema fantastique, which is my right. favorite I haven't word been to it. that one, but that morphed from the, uh, uh, it was a, a ski resort town. I forget what it was called, but it became oh. this festival. Yeah. Ah. Well, it was really amazing. Avoriaz, it turned into that. Ah. It started as Avoriaz. I didn't know that. I oh. believe so, and if I'm not, I'm mistaken. sure you're right. No, but I'm anyway, sure right. but it was lovely, and yeah. it's French, and <clears throat> yeah. um, I met all these amazing people. And John Landis was the head of the jury. Oh, how great! <laughs> Jean Pierre Genet was on the jury. Like wow. it was incredible. Yeah. And then, and Cube won every prize. They had three prizes and won every single one. And that's actually what sparked the French distributor to really push the movie. And then it became quite a like quite a success in France. Um, that I still, to this day, have been able to leverage into financing for my film. So it's, it was a really good thing. And, uh, yeah, that was probably the big one. Yeah. Oh, so what did you do next? Was, uh, is Sci Factor? That's the next one on, <laughs> on your resume. You did an episode of Sci Factor <laughs> with my buddy Matt you. Frewer, though. You know, was Matt in your... <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, sure, sure, absolutely. I've, he's been in more of my shows than any actor. I love him. <laughs> But I know it was a little 16 millimeter, you know, local Canadian uh, show that went into. So, but that was your first professional job after this, right? Yes. Yes. And, and so tell me about that experience. I mean, oh, uh, it was horrible, actually. <laughs> <laughs> it was horrible because the DP, for some reason, made it his mission to destroy me. Oh, nice. And I don't know. I Wow. Maybe because I was very young at the time. Mm. I, don't, I, I honestly have no idea. I like Matthew lovely yeah uh but um yeah and i i mean and you know i honestly i did that because i just desperately needed to make ends meet well it was an offer to actually work as a professional filmmaker yeah you know it's a funny thing i think this is a very canadian thing that i'm doing but in canada we eat our own <laughs> so to my film student eyes, particularly at that time, a Canadian TV show was nothing to be proud of. <laughs> I totally get that. And, and so, um, not that I was ashamed of it per se, but I mean, I was, I was very lucky and happy to do it. But I, it wasn't something that I was waving around um, after I finished it. 
Right. So, Cypher, tell me how the next movie came to be. Cypher was your next feature, right? Yeah. So I was, I was uh, very, very keen to make my next film uh, this thing called Splice. And um, immediately after I did Cube, I wrote Splice. Uh, with, and I'm uh, eager to talk about that soon, too. Yeah, <laughs> we'll get to that after this. Well, yeah. Splice had a very painful long journey to the screen as well. Yes. And, and that was going to be my follow-up. And I, there's a Canadian producer uh, who was in, insanely uh, well-financed at that time who was going to make it. And I spent a solid year prepping it, like everything. And at the end of that year, he decided not to make it. Oh, ouch. So uh, fair enough. It was, it was a very expensive movie. And this I, is you know, 2001, 2002, somewhere around there? This was like 1999 Oh, okay. So even earlier. Uh, yeah. yeah. And, uh, but it, a number of years had passed since I had made Cube. And when that fell through, I was like, I, I just have to, I really need to make a movie. I was just desperate to do something. Um, and friend of mine, Brian King, had written a script called Company Man that I had just been um, giving him notes on. And and then it, he gave me a draft of it uh, after rewriting it. And I just thought, this is an amazing script. And mm. I said, it's too bad I'll never get to make it because Ridley Scott's going to make it or somebody <laughs> yeah. big is going to make this because it's a, it's a really... Uh, I, and I also thought, like, oh, this is probably a very commercial kind of project, mainstream kind of movie. And, uh, but Ridley Scott did not get to make it. Uh, I got to make it. <laughs> there you go. And, and, it, and, and in this case, I think what had happened was, this is what I mean by the slow punch. By the time I went out with that script, the marketplace, because the film was being financed more or less um, independently, the international marketplace suddenly really knew what Cube was and knew who I was. Uh-huh. And that film got financed like that. And wow. if, if I hadn't, if I had known that, <laughs> Things might have been a little bit different with Splice. I think that um, I just I actually didn't know my market value at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but anyway, so obviously neither did your agent. <laughs> no, it was a very weird thing. No, that's just it because yeah. because Cube was like not. I mean, it had a theatrical release in the United States, but it was like a nominal one, and it just yeah, it just was more like a culty thing. Um, but not so elsewhere, and and anyway, so very fortunately. Um, company man as it was called then and we had to change the title because someone else took it um and we changed it to cypher uh happened almost immediately and it was again i had a, in that case actually had a really good time making the film oh i nice. had so much fun and it was with jeremy northam and lucy Liu, and two of my favorites i got to and i got like i didn't want to make a movie in one room <laughs> i was very and i kept getting people kept giving me of course nice you know these one room movies, but this one was everywhere. We were like in helicopters, we were underground, we were on water, we were everywhere. Wow. And it's kind of like Kafka meets James Bond. It's like a, or, or, or I used to say it's the Philip K. Dick movie that wasn't written by Philip K. Dick. And it was a very <laughs> heady kind of spy fi movie. And I thought Brian's script was magnificent. Which and, makes sense after Cube, which was also kind of an intellectual uh, mindfuck uh, sort of movie. Yeah, that's where my heart is. Absolutely, yeah. and uh, and I and we can say mind fuck now that we're with Blumhouse. So. Yes, we can say mind fuck. <laughs> God damn it. Um, so yeah, so uh, it was a wonderful. I had a great time doing. It. I did it with the same team that uh, I worked with on Cube. Yasna did the production design, which was amazing, and Derek Rogers shot it. Did a beautiful job. 
Um, but, <laughs> but they sold the company that produced it, which is an American company, sold it to Miramax. Ah. And I told them, do not sell it to Miramax because arrogantly I thought this film's going to be so good. You're going to get way more money for it when it's done. And yeah. it's going to be, you know, uh, and also I knew of Miramax's reputation. Uh, so Harvey scissor hands. Yeah. Yeah. So now thankfully I was spared that I wasn't scissored, but I was, I was vaulted. I was stuck in the Miramax <laughs> vault. Yeah. And along with a lot of other very reputable films. Yeah. It, it was really disheartening. And they, I can sur- surmise what happened. They had made a couple Philip K. Dick type things. They did Equilibrium and a Philip K. Dick movie called Imposter, mm-hmm. both of which, Equilibrium is a pretty good movie, by the way, mm-hmm. but both of them bombed. And then my sort of cold Kubrickian sci-fi movie showed up and I think they just went, nah. And they had so much little money. They just had like a very tiny investment. So it just went into the vault in America and was not released until Disney bought Miramax, and then they just right. they just dumped everything that was in that vault onto DVD, and that was it. And um, uh, it, Cipher did get released pretty much everywhere else in the world. Um, and I was I to this day I I don't know I feel pretty good about it. actually I think yeah. it's um, I I like the movie, but uh, but it it just didn't in a way didn't exist, right? And that was that was a blow. Well. One of the things that you've been doing in recent years is really great television. <laughs> so I've found in in my history, my best opportunities have been in television. And my feature opportunities have been uh, of a lower level. And I can see that happening with yours as well. I mean, Hannibal, I think, is the best broadcast TV network show ever. Uh, you've done American Gods. You know, you've done Westworld. Basically, you and Neil Marshall seem to <laughs> live in the same planet. Right. Um, so, so tell me about how TV appealed to you, because you've done so much work within it, as well as the feature work, too. And then we'll get to Splice and, uh, and some of the other theatrical stuff. Yeah, sure. Uh, well, I came to television out of desperation. Mm. <laughs> Honestly. I get it. I had no interest in doing TV um, I hadn't watched TV since I was a kid because when I was a kid, I watched so much mm-hmm. that I, I, I could almost say I developed an allergic reaction to it. To this day, I have a hard time watching television at home. It just mm. makes me feel ill because I think I wasted so much of my <laughs> childhood in front of it. Um, not to say I don't think there's amazing television. Actually, the television far surpasses films by and large in terms of quality, but I just... I would agree. There's just something about i just like to watch movies i like to watch my visual media in a movie theater right that's how i like to consume it and uh so i didn't have a particular desire to do tv at all it's just that making films became so incredibly hard and at that point i had a family and i just knew i needed to work so i i kind of put out the word like i want to do some stuff and weirdly i ended up the first thing i did was my own tv series Mm -hmm. um because I had optioned a, a very interesting Japanese horror television show called Torihada, which means goosebumps. Ah, and but you couldn't use that title. <laughs> definitely couldn't use that title. Uh, and but it was a real. What I loved about it, it was, first of all, it had this make you know 
this tone to it, which is so particularly Japanese um, in that it's, it was very uh, subdued and creepy. Um, but it wasn't supernatural. It wasn't like J-horror. It was all things that could happen in real life. Right. And, and each episode is what I thought was really smart about it. It was an anthology series. Each episode was composed of multiple stories. Ah. So I, with my producing partner in Canada, Steve Hoban, uh, we managed to put it together as a series in Canada. And we did six episodes mm. um, as an anthology horror. And then we, but we didn't copy the show. We sort of, we took elements of it. We took that structure. We took some of the stories but effectively, we transplanted it to the internet, so we called it uh, Darknet. Right. And uh, it was always actually intended to have an internet component to it or an interactive component. And, um, and, and so it was a series of stories that centered uh, around this, uh, this Darknet website. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that's how I started doing TV, other than my sci factor experience long ago <laughs> right um but that's really how i started into the kind of the new world of television right and and it was a great way to start because i came at it both as a director and a writer and as a producer because i was producing the other i did one episode but i was producing the other ones right and so i really got a sense of this mechanism and what the producers are looking for from the directors and my impression was that the best episodes were done by the directors who put the most of themselves into them. Admittedly, this is an anthology show. Well, that's what we did with Masters of Horror, too. Right, exactly. It just gave them complete creative control as long as they did it on time and on budget. And it worked out so great that way. The filmmakers are the ones who should guide that process. Yeah, exactly. It was really beautiful. I loved it. And I had actually done an anthology film years ago called uh, Paris Je Tem. Which Wes Craven also did, right? Yes, yeah. he was actually cameoed in my segment. Oh, how great. How and great. he was so... I hit him. Actually, that's another story. I, first shot I lined up uh, on that uh, that short film, I, I hit Wes Craven with a, a techno crane. Oh, no. In the face. Oh, <laughs> Jesus. And he was so Ouch. kind. He was such a gentle, lovely man. And he he didn't say anything. He just... Yeah, he was. A he, he was a wonderful person. Anyway, sorry, I'm digressing. But um, oh, but uh, but that was a very. I was I was sandwiched between Wes Craven and Alexander Payne. Yeah, it was wow. an incredible surreal experience in Paris, and they were so kind, and it was this you know really fraternal, lovely uh, quality to the whole thing, and and it, and we tried to emulate that with our Darknet show, mm-hmm. and I really loved it. Um, uh, but it, and it but it also gave me a perspective so that when I directed my first episode of television in the new century, um, which was an episode of Hemlock Grove, Eli I really, Roth show for uh, Netflix. Yeah. It was an, it was like one of the first Netflix shows. Yeah, um, and I uh, I took that approach. I just went. I'm making my movie, yeah. and I'm going to put as much of myself into this as I put into my own films, and you know, within the constraints of, of time and, and money. Um, and, but I'm not going to take ownership over it. I'm mm-hmm. not going to, I know that this isn't mine. Right. And I really enjoyed that freedom. It was a weird thing. I was kind of, I felt like all of a sudden I was free from myself. Yeah. And, and it was tremendously liberating. And 
Uh, and I actually found it very artistically fulfilling. And then, again, as luck would have it, next door to us, like the offices for Hemlock Grove were literally separated by a door to the offices for Hannibal. Oh, my God. Because they were both produced by this French company that produced Splice. Right. Gaumont. Right. The world's oldest film studio. How fortuitous. How yeah. fortuitous. Yeah, it really was. And I... Uh, uh, and I, I, I actually don't even really know how I got Hannibal, but I think it was sort of the confluence of that experience with, I don't know. Um, well, the whole few, I, I knew Martha De Laurentiis a little bit. Anyway, yeah. Um, so I did an episode of Hannibal, and I really fell in love with the show. Yeah. Um, and I felt I just thought everything about it was incredible, and and I actually feel like probably some of my best work as a director, was on the show. There's more passion in each of those episodes, more cinematic filmmaker passion than anything I've seen on television. You can feel how people are stretching the boundaries of the filmmaking language, you know? It, it really Well, that's what it's like to work with Brian. Yeah. Who I, I really adore, and I think... Um, Brian Fuller. Yeah. Brian Fuller, I'm sorry, uh, who is, you know, both... I, I love just because he's a brilliant writer... Uh, and showrunner, producer, and and also because I think he's a really, really interesting person. Yeah, he's been on the show. I heard yeah. his interview. Oh, it was, great. Yeah, it was great. Uh, I find him... He's fantastic. Uh, uh, yeah, I think he's a really great guy and intensely fascinating and uh, and intensely demanding, mm-hmm. um, And but not dictatorial. Like, he, Brian's thing was always what can you bring to the show? Like what, you know, like he was very interested in the directors creating something, not Mm. just doing what they're told. Um, In fact, he would fire you if you did that. Uh, (laughs) He really wanted, and, and then, and that was what I wanted. You know, that was like license for me to just go crazy and really push myself and, um, and everybody else as much as I could to, uh, and push the, you know, I don't want to be pretentious about it, but push the medium a little bit too, you know, like really try to be experimental. And Our genre allows and encourages that because it's metaphorical and it's surreal as opposed to hyperreal. And no show more so than Hannibal. Absolutely. It's complete. That show, of course, is, it's all psychological. Yeah. And, and highly subjective. And, uh. Well, yeah. you know, um. Richard Matheson once said to me when I was doing Amazing Stories, we worked together on that, and he said to me something quite profound. He said, film is external and literature is internal. But in the case of Hannibal, because of its psychological nature, here are a bunch of filmmakers, writers, directors, producers getting together to externalize the internal Mm. in in the vocabulary of filmmaking. Mm. And that's one of the things I find so profound about the show. I think so. And, I th- and, and also because it has this incredible relationship at its core. Yeah. And those actors are magnificent. And, uh, and then what Brian was writing uh, with his writing team was magnificent. So when you were handed this plate, it was this, it was this amazing meal. Yeah. And you would just <laughs> so dig speak. in. Yeah. And it, the only problem with it was it was – we had eight days, mm-hmm. and when I did three episodes together, I had seven days, oh technically speaking, yeah. although it ended up being more. Um, but it was very difficult to make it, and and people were brutalized uh, to 
get through that process. So the hours were very long. The hours were brutal. We were shooting. We happened to um, experience this thing called a polar vortex <laughs> in mm. Toronto where we were shooting. Oh God! Uh, for the two years that I worked on it, and so people were out in minus thirty degrees every oh, night, God. and it was, and mostly shooting night. It was really mm. hard uh, physically and mentally. And the way Brian works is stuff shows up, like new pages show up the day before, the night before sometimes, like mm-hmm. and like highly ambitious stuff. Right. Uh, which is not, I'm very, I'm super prep oriented. Like that's just, it's my storyboard. Mr. Storyboard. Mr. Yeah, storyboard here. Um, and so that, but that was good for me, right? Because it pushed me to an uncomfortable place uh, mm-hmm. that I think allowed me to grow a little bit. And uh, anyway, so... So that was my entree into television, and then it just kind of kept rolling from there. And it's been, I found it to be a really kind of enlivening, resurrecting experience. Because prior to that, I had gone through an excruciating development process on two very ambitious and probably foolish endeavors on my (laughs) behalf, Um, one being an adaptation of J.G. Ballard's High Rise and the other being an adaptation of William Gibson's Neuromancer. Which, I mean, you were attached to Neuromancer for a long time and High Rise eventually got made by somebody else. Yeah, it was hard. That one hurt. I think Neuromancer I'm, I'm very much at peace with because it, for me, it had its moment mm-hmm. and now that moment's passed. Like I couldn't, even if someone said, here, here Vincenzo, here's $100 million, go make it. I, I probably would make it. But... <laughs> I would make up with the reservation because I, what what I wanted to do with that movie was very particular to the moment when I was working on it, and right. I feel like that time has passed. Right, High Rise I worked on for ten years, oh. and I really had a and both by the way, I, I believe that both those scripts were really great, mm-hmm. um, and I believe that High Rise would have been really great, but it, I just couldn't get it made. It was too expensive. Yeah, and 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 same with Neuromancer had, there was a little bit of issue with some of the producers that kind of made it implode but um uh but fundamentally that was the issue it was just it was too dark and too expensive but you were able to circle around circle back and come back to splice which is an incredibly bold movie there's stuff that happens in that movie (laughs) that um let's see alien fucking by <laughs> both genders that is Equal opportunity yes it is something you would never expect from a studio type movie that you get in splice and so tell me about how is it the movie you intended seven years earlier or did it really change much were it, you able to make the movie you wanted to make uh i'll kind of all of the above because, oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. No, no, it was a dr- No, after that, I mean, listen, if somebody walks in this room and shoots me in the head, it's okay because I got to make splice. It really is. <laughs> like I'm I'm at peace. I'm true I I really mean this. I'm at peace now. I made I did my thing on this planet. I can depart anytime. I'm okay with that because uh I knew and of course I wanted to make it because it was so strange and difficult. Right? That's why we right. do these things. And boundary we wanna, stretching. Yeah. Yeah, we want to we want to push these boundaries we want to mutate the form and and that's why it was intensely frustrating when i came to hollywood and met all these people that you know i could only imagine meeting with um only to discover that they only wanted to make stuff that had been made a long time ago and often and often and i (laughs) really 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 didn't want to do that so 
with Splice, um, which owes a huge debt to many sources and filmmakers, um, but I felt was definitely pushing the boundaries of what that kind of story was about and could be. And the technology also um, at that time was, uh, it was a little bit, um, uh, I would say, aggressive in terms of trying to do something new with the way we create a creature. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I first attempted it in around 1999, 2000, it just, it didn't happen. But um, but in a way, I was glad because I felt like that story, maybe by the younger me, wouldn't have been serviced as well. And so when I did get to make it, I think I it was probably made better by a slightly older person. And maybe the technology caught up to your ambition a little bit more. It did, and was more slightly more affordable. Um, so so we were able to make it for less money. And and anyway, it was it was. A miracle in every sense, because in order for that film to happen, the planets had to align, mm-hmm. and it was it was threading a needle because it was a twenty five million dollar film financed independently. Um, so it wasn't a studio film at that time. It was made right. with Goma, but financed you know with international sales. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was the last moment when you could finance a movie like that for that amount of money. Um, in that way, and especially a horror film. Yeah. Now you, you basically have to be James Cameron to do that mm-hmm. or have some huge actor in your film, um, which I wasn't. And I had, <laughs> you know, I had good, really good actors in my film, but I didn't yeah. have box office bonanza actors in my movie. So that was just an incredible series of events that just happened to land in the perfect way, in the perfect place, at the perfect time to make that happen. And you made your dream movie. And I made my dream movie. And again, it ex- took its pound of flesh. It was an excruciatingly <laughs> difficult, hard process. Throughout. Tell me how it was difficult. It was difficult because every step of the way, it looked like it was going to collapse. Mm. And then it would reform itself. Like the creature, it would kind of reform itself <laughs> and transform and survive. Um, it was, in fact, the hardest part, at least emotionally for me, was after it was finished because... Um, it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. I finished the movie, but the world economy collapsed. <laughs> yeah, it took a while for the movie to come out, didn't it? It took a while because I finished it in 2009. And I think it took, we had a four, it's a weird thing. We started shooting 2007 and we kind of, yeah, it's crazy. Wow. We shot end of 2007 into 2008. Then I had 14 months of post. Wow. So that's how we did the creature because we didn't have, a big budget, but we had lots of time. Oh, that's and so we were able to do it in a very. We had really good effects artists, and we were able to do it in a very, very refined, piece by piece way. Um, that and it allowed us to have great effects for a reasonable cost. Um, but it took a long time. Mm-hmm. So that was fourteen months. Then we took it to Con, not to the festival, but to the market, only to find that no one really wanted it. Oh. And uh, no one in America wanted it. Mm-hmm. And, and America's the big play. And you can't, yes, you really, no one wants to buy a film that's orphaned in America. Right. It triggers the rest of the world. It triggers the rest of the world. And at that time, it, was, it may have been the film, but it was also that really no one had the money. Like, literally, people didn't have the money to buy films. And if, it was so bad that if you wanted your movie released at that time, you had to come with the PNA money, like the publicity and advertising money. So mm. it's crazy. So we, we, I mean, we had one 
option, which was MGM. Uh, and and Gaumont had somehow cobbled together $20 million in P&A money, but they wouldn't sign the MGM deal for whatever reason. And mm-hmm. I was saying, man, you've got to sign that deal. Sign it, sign it, sign it. Or it's going to be my third film to go straight to DVD. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Three strikes. <laughs> and I just thought, that, yeah, and, and therefore probably the end of my career. Plus it would never get into movie theaters. Anyway, uh, but the film got into Sundance. Oddly enough, at which point I said, "You really better sign this thing because." <laughs> yeah. um, but then, actually, well, I should, I'm back. I, I should back up because there is an amusing story. Originally, in order to get the film greenlit with Goma, we had to have a U.S. distributor. A very dubious distributor came on board, Uh-oh. which was um, uh, an American arm of a German company called Senator, right. who had never distributed film in the United States before. Great, but that's what we needed to have in order to. Get the movie greenlit. That company went out of business. During production? During production or shortly (laughs) after. And I thought, my first fear was we're going to be stuck in some kind of legal quagmire. Somehow we escaped that. Then MGM showed interest. They went out of business. Yep. (laughs) So then, now I'm remembering correctly, when Sundance came around, uh, Sony was interested. Mm -hmm. And I said, you got to do this. <laughs> yes. Like this, we're never going to get another chance. Just sign the deal. And Goma is often compared to an old lady <laughs> in that <laughs> okay. it's very, yes. it's a company that operates very slowly. It's gr- a graceful company. It's very slow. Graceful. And they would not sign this deal. And I said, listen, when this thing shows that Sundance, anything could happen. Like it could be a disaster and then, you know, you'll lose your opportunity. They wouldn't do it. What ended up happening, which is the weirdest thing imaginable, was uh, somebody from Joel Silver's company, mm. Dark Castle, mm-hmm. was at that screening and liked the movie. Or maybe it was that Joel saw a picture from it and asked them to go. At any rate, uh-huh. they, Dark Castle said they wanted to release the film. Wow. With Warner Brothers, which was even weirder. Yeah. Uh, and that's what happened. They bought it at Sundance. So, thank, I mean, thank God. Yes. Goma didn't uh, listen to me, and <laughs> yes. and the best thing could happen. And then I was terrified because I thought, oh my god, Joel Silver is going to like cut this thing to ribbons. Yeah, no, didn't love the you. movie. Yeah, he we did some sweetening to the mix and the color grade, and Great. he wanted to trim a little bit, which actually I thought was a creatively good suggestion, not to change anything, just to make it Tighten a little it bit tighter little. at the end. So we cut, I don't know, maybe a minute or two out of it, um, and. That was the movie that got released. Amazing. And it was a huge failure. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, uh, but it was the movie that I so desperately wanted yeah. to make. So and, it really got it, and it, and, and it really got out there. You know, it, infect, yeah. it infected the world at large. <laughs> yes. Well, you got three movies that you wanted to make out there. And how often does that? The way you wanted them made, too. Yes. And in fact, there was even another one before that. I made a strange movie, a very strange movie called Nothing. I haven't seen nothing. <laughs> <laughs> you and most of the world. <laughs> yeah. But nothing, again, a film that I'm very, what's, you know, pathetic and, and uh, perhaps a little bit ironic is that I'm very proud of these films. But I know exactly how you feel. I, my least successful movies have often been the ones that are closest to my heart. I love these films. They're, well, yes, you know exactly. They're, yeah. they're your children. And, and I stand by them 
Not that they're perfect films, but I stand by them. And uh, they're your babies. Come on, absolutely. Yeah. And I and mean, you spend a year at least of your life making it. You know, absolutely. And they're very. These films are all kind of homemade. Yeah, they're made with people I've known most of my life, and um, you know, in environs that are very close to me. And they're they're very personal in their own way. Uh, and yes, and so yes, even I, I only say this to say that I even had another film that. <laughs> you know, was made that was very pure in that way. It just, it was an incredibly strange film. Yeah. Um, and uh, probably not for mass consumption. Uh, and it was a comedy, but. Um, okay. I've got to track down nothing. Yes. You, I, I, well, I wouldn't recommend it, but, but <laughs> you can, you'll probably find, Too bad. stumble in it on YouTube. To. Yeah. I'll find it. Uh, but, but anyway, yeah. So no, I have been very, very fortunate that way. Well, what do you love about film? Not just as a filmmaker, but as a film watcher. I, th- well, it's many things, of course, but I, I, th- for me, the movies that are the most meaningful are to me are the ones when I leave the theater, I feel that my perception of the world has been altered by the filmmaker. And I'm now looking through the lens of that movie. Mm. And that's happened a number of times. And I think it's a really consciousness-expanding experience. And um, so I guess in its most profound sense, that's what it is. Uh, but it's also, you know, I mean, I just, it's, it's nice to watch an entertaining film. Yeah. Stories, uh, yeah. Uh, exactly. And, and to lose yourself in that, that, you know, universe, that's a beautiful thing. Who are the filmmakers that have most influenced you? Not necessarily as an artist yourself, but just who you most appreciate that excite you. Here's a movie by so-and-so. I won't miss that. Um, well, there's a lot. I mean, I think there's, for me, there's the Holy Trinity or the unholy Trinity of David Lynch, David Cronenberg, Stanley Kubrick. Pretty, you know, I mean, I, I I struggle not to fall too deeply under their influence, mm-hmm. particularly David Lynch. I kind of had to do a few David Lynchy short films early <laughs> on to just kind of get it out, really, <laughs> truly to get out of my system yeah. to kind of find my own voice. Um, uh, but you know, there are many. I mean, Kurosawa and Hitchcock, and yeah, I mean, just yeah, the usual the usual yeah. suspects. Fellini. Well, much like David Cronenberg, you're. Torontonian, although you were born in the U.S., you moved to Canada early in life, and you stayed there. Um, what keeps you in Toronto? Well, I, I, came in, I left there, actually. I came to L.A. for many years. Yeah. But I always ended up going back to make... It's a, it completely is part of this you know, absurd um, uh, lifestyle, but uh, I, I moved to L.A. to make movies. Every time I would make a film, it would always be in Toronto. Yeah, the actual making of the movie always be in Toronto. <laughs> I was born here, and I've worked here maybe twice in the last twenty <laughs> years, literally twice in the last twenty years. Yeah, yeah. So I, I moved back. I moved back to Toronto because I was just always, especially when the, I started doing TV work. Everything that I was doing, for some reason, purely by chance, happened to be in Toronto. So I, for me, it's been Vancouver. But you know. oh, there you go. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's funny. I mean, so strange. Anyway. Uh, so I just decided to stay. Um, and I, I, I do love that city. Were you surprised to find that doing episodes of somebody else's TV series could be as rewarding as making movies? Uh, yes, I was hugely surprised. It is a different thing though. I think, I think I'm kind of at a point now where like I need to make my own thing. Something that starts and ends with you. Yeah, I feel like I've been wearing other people's clothes for a long time, and now I need to put on my own pants and 
for once. But um, uh, but but as I say, that that's also been kind of wonderful in its own particular way. And um, there's something freeing about you know the tyranny of your own self, like being in your own skin all the time, and mm-hmm. to kind of be able to escape into someone else's is a really, I think, is really healthy. Um, and I've grown a lot, and I'm actually kind of excited to make another movie to see what that is because I chalked up probably five times the number of hours making those TV shows that I did making my own film. So I feel like I've been in a gym work. I feel really buff as a filmmaker. I've been working <laughs> out for a long out. time. Yeah. So I'm really ready to, you know, to try doing my own thing again. And do you have something ready to go? I have, uh, this can't, it hasn't been formally announced. So I have to be careful okay. when this podcast goes out, but, um, uh, I'm working with your dear friend, Stephen King, uh, and his son, Joe Hill. Fantastic. Yeah, I adapted their uh, novella uh, In the Tall Grass. Oh, how great. So I'm doing that with Netflix. And that's the next that's movie. The su- that's the summer, yeah. That's yeah, we're, great. We're prepping it now. Well, Vincenzo, thank you so much. This has been a great time. We'll go oh. on and on the next time, but uh, thanks for joining us. Oh, Mick, so nice. Thank you. Such a Fantastic. pleasure. Such an honor. Thank you. All right. Thanks for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every other Wednesday and subscribe on iTunes. Calling all coffee drinkers. If you've been trying to enhance your daily coffee routine, then Quest has got your back with their brand new iced coffees. Now available in two delightfully delicious flavors that'll be sure to add an extra pep in your step. Vanilla latte and mocha latte. Quest has been on a mission to help fuel you with protein-forward foods you'll love. Each bottle of Quest iced coffee is packed with 200 milligrams of caffeine, the same amount as two cups of regular coffee, plus 10 grams of protein per serving to help you supercharge your day. And did I mention that they only contain one gram of sugar? It might just be time to cheat on your iced coffee with iced coffee. Find Quest iced coffees on Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition. That's Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition.